Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. We live in an interesting world. I never cease to be amazed by headlines, I guess. Maybe I should. I just looked at a couple this morning and noticed that there were uh, there was a big demonstration in Washington, D.C., or perhaps a suburb. I didn't quite get the location. Protesters protesting the potential overturn of Roe v. Wade after, what, 50 years nearly? And they were protesting at the houses of Supreme Court justices, whom they perceived to be on the wrong side in terms of what they believe. I also noticed a headline, you can't help but notice it, that there's a war going on in Ukraine. Ukrainians had pushed back, presumably all the way to the border of Russia. And depending on your perspective and your beliefs and your sources and what you think about things, could be a good thing made me curious as to how many wars are going on in the world right now. Anybody want to venture a guess? (laughs) You have to define these things. There's a website I found that, that categorizes wars into four sorts. And I forget what the bottom two were, but the next to the top one was called minor wars. They define these as where between 1,000 and 9,999 deaths have happened in the past 16 months. Sounds pretty major. You know how many there are of those right now? May 8, 2022? 13. 13 wars in which they're all intranational, by the way, within the political boundaries of a political entity we call a nation. There's 13 of them probably ethnic groups in different areas. I looked at the the things. Many of them were in Africa. How many major wars do you think there are ongoing at the current time? This is how they define them. 10,000 plus deaths in the last 16 months. How many would you guess? Two? Three? There are five right now intra or inter-national wars involving six countries, you could name most of them, Afghanistan, Yemen, Ethiopia, your friends from Eritrea right next door, they've been chased out. Many Eritreans have immigrated to this country because of the conflict in Ethiopia. Afghanistan, Yemen, Ethiopia, Burma, and of course, Ukraine and Russia, six nations, five conflicts. It's been on my heart a lot just because I get letters and I I have sources that feedback information. One of them is a ministry I won't name since this is online, but it's a mission that you help support through Heritage. We're grateful for them. And the one uh, who our support goes through wrote to us about a ministry they have in Ukraine right now. Let me read a portion of a letter. It says, Dear Heritage Family, and I'm changing the names here. Smila Ukraine, 
that's a location, has been a center of our ministry for the past 25 years. My memories of the place reach back over every one of those years, but now so many of those picturesque places, favorite coffee shops, homes where our shared meals and laughter are just rubble. I'm so grateful to, for the deep and enduring friendships I've been blessed by, but it's very hard to see and hear what our friends are suffering in this war. Our country director, Sergei, I'm calling him, who is also a pastor in Smila, and his family have been displaced from their home. Probably no surprise there. They found shelter elsewhere in Smila and have chosen to stay so Sergei can continue to shepherd his congregation. And so he and his family can help with the hurting and the hungry. Sergey and I have exchanged email verses from the Psalms that have been especially encouraging to us. The most recent passage he sent surprised me. He had been back to his church to lead the Sunday service, even though now the roads have numerous roadblocks and checkpoints and tank defenses. And the meadow on one side of the church has a footpath we used to walk to his home on. Now it is sown with landmines. In the midst of all this, here's what Sergei sent. Thou art my Lord. I have no good besides thee. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Is that beautiful? This is part of where your support goes to help people who are suffering. Wars are certainly nothing new. Those who understand biblical prophecy recognize that wars of every stripe will continue until Jesus Christ returns in glory to fulfill Isaiah's ancient prophecy and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Prince of Peace. Do you look forward to that time? Amen. The ancient world was no exception. They also experienced many international and regional wars. The Old Testament bears ample testimony to the fact. This morning, I want to turn our attention to a prophet whose difficult message was to warn his own nation, Judah, of impending invasion. And so I invite you to turn to Habakkuk. Habakkuk. We don't often go there. It's a beautiful book. It's a difficult book to read, but it ends gloriously. It's tiny, so you might have to go back to your, maybe the, the days of sword drills, you also did lists of Bible books. It's Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. So if you find Jonah, Micah, Nahum, you know you're close. Just go to the right a little bit. Habakkuk chapter 1. Let me give you a quick background while you're turning. We know little of the prophet himself other than the fact that he prophesied sometime during the reign of Judah's last few kings. Maybe 609 B.C. and later as the calendar goes backward on the other side of, of the birth of Christ. 609 B.C. and later down into the 500s. You remember the kings of that time? 
Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. Easy to remember because Zedekiah was the last one that got taken into captivity. Habakkuk's prophecy is short and it's unusual in that it's largely a conversation. It's a dialogue between the prophet and the Lord rather than the more common proclamation by a prophet with what the Lord was saying to his people. Habakkuk's ministry took place during a badly deteriorating national situation. Maybe similar to some we see on earth right now, some we may fear in our own country. This was in Judah. King Josiah had been killed in a battle defending his own country. His son had become king but was deposed in short order, something like two or three months. His replacement was another son who was little more than a puppet king for Egypt. Both of them embraced evil in contrast to what their father had done. And religious and social degradation became the norm. Let me say that again. Religious and social degrading became the norm. How bad was it? Well, of these years, Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Habakkuk, lived roughly the same time, says, he says this in Jeremiah 17. He says, the sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their hearts. It's in this context that we go to Habakkuk. I'm going to give you a quick survey of the first two chapters. We're just going to survey them. You can open it and watch as I read verse, different verses. It's a conversation, remember. It's a dialogue between the prophet and the Lord in heaven, this self-existent God. And Habakkuk queries the Lord, starting right off. He says, Lord, why no response to Judah's constant violence and injustice? I've been praying, I've been talking, I've been bringing this to your attention. Why does the God of all the earth do nothing? Look in verse 2. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry, violence, yet you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. The law, it's ignored. Justice is never upheld. Ever feel that way? Justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous and justice comes out perverted. Well, the Lord hears Habakkuk's complaint. But the response is far more consequential than Habakkuk really expects. Look in verse 5. The Lord's answer basically is, I'm preparing a dreaded enemy to plunder the nations, including the people of Judah. Look in verse 6. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded. They are feared. Verse 9. All of them come for violence. 
Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock kings. Rulers are a laughing matter to them. And they laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Now Habakkuk's got two problems. Judah's violence and sin and religious degradation and idolatry. But he also has the threat of punishment coming from a distant land. Matthew Henry comments on this passage. He says, the prophet grieves that the Chaldeans prevail. So much to the point that he now scarcely knows which is more to be lamented, the sin of Judah or the punishment of it. Well, Habakkuk's not done. He comes back in Habakkuk 1.12 through the first verse of the next chapter. He counters the Lord's startling revelation. He says, why would a holy God allow such a notoriously evil and idolatrous people to triumph? They're going to win? Seriously? 13, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You can't look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Verse 17, will they continually slay nations without sparing? Well, the Lord gives a response this time too. Remember, it's conversation. It's a back and forth. It's well worth a read on your own time. In response, the Lord pronounces decisive judgment on the Chaldeans. You can see it in a series of five woes in chapter 2, verses 6, 9, 12, 15, 19. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's an emotional outburst of pain, basically is what woes were. And Habakkuk may think that he got what he asked for. But the Lord not only pronounces decisive judgment on the Chaldeans through those woes, he states that it won't take place until Jerusalem bears its own sentence of utter ruin. You know the story, don't you? You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who, who's going to be a king or two later? He comes, and eventually in 586 B.C., as the calendar counts down to the time of Christ's coming, he, he throws every rock down that's on top of another one. It's level. The town is burnt. They only leave the poorest of the poor in the land and take everybody else captive. Or kill them. How would you like to deliver a prophecy like that? I often thank God for the relative peace and safety that we still enjoy. What a gift. We must be using this time for His purposes. Well, Chapter 2 is where we're leaving it right now, but still tucked away within that chapter of judgment. Within the Lord's severe message of woe are unimaginably beautiful and timely reminders of His holy sovereignty. Look at verse 20. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. His holy sovereignty is there. Look back in verse 14. His overwhelming glory. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like water covering the sea, which is quite an illustration. It's like, wow, that's pretty ubiquitous. It's like everywhere. 
It saturates everything. And he prophesies this in the midst of this judgment. And then back to verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with him, right within him, but the righteous will live by his face, faith rather. It's to this foundational verse, this seminal verse, not just for Habakkuk, not just for the Old Testament, but the entire Bible. That's foundational. And we're going to turn our focus for the rest of our time there. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. What does that mean? Let's put it in its context. <coughs> the verse brings out a, a contrast. Did you notice the contrast? There's a stark contrast. The proud one and the righteous one. What does it mean to be proud? Well, let's see what the context tells us. The ver verb itself means to swell up, to swell up, to puff up. The context reveals that the proud man is haughty, verse 5. Also in verse 5, he's greedy. In verses 6 and 9, he's a thief. In verses 8 and 12, he's a murderer. Verse 18 points out he's an idolater. And by the way, the Chaldeans were idolaters of their own power. We, we won't take time to read it, but in Habakkuk chapter 1, it says, they sweep up the nations like a net gathers fish and they eat heartily from their catch, and then they worship the net. Symbol of their power. The proud one is idolatrous. And sometimes idols can surprise us. They can pop in the most unexpected places. Sometime I wanna, I wanna I either teach or preach on that. Idolatry is a very modern problem, contrary to what most of us believe. Verse 4 then says he is guilty. It says his soul, the last part of verse 4, his soul is not right. His soul is not right. What's going on? Well, if you look at the context and you follow it through, it's guilt. And verse 16 says he's under a sentence. Verse 16, the last part says the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you. You know what's in the cup? It's the wrath of the Lord. Jeremiah adds his commentary as a contemporary of Habakkuk. Jeremiah 25, 15 says, this is what the Lord says. The God of Israel said to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. All of them. And if you go to that context, guess who's first on the list? Jerusalem and Judah to drink the cup of the Lord's wrath for the iniquity and the sin that he will no longer tolerate. And there's so many other nations, the Chaldeans included there too, along with many of Israel's neighbors. God is a holy God, like we sang, only a holy God, but still who invites us to call him Father. So can, can we summarize? Can we summarize the proud one from this verse, verse four, and, and the context afterwards? Well, I'm going to try here. According to Habakkuk, the proud person thinks highly of himself in spite of possessing both attitudes and actions which betray his guilt and rightly call for a just punishment from the Lord. I'll read it again. This is what, what the text says. 
The proud one is a, a proud person who thinks highly of himself in spite of possessing both the attitudes and the actions to others, which betray guilt and rightly call for a just punishment from the Lord. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet that's what happens to the nations apart from God's mercy and forgiveness. Well, that's the proud one. Let's go to the second half of the verse, verse 4b. The righteous, there are only three descriptors in all of verse 4. And there's nothing else in the passage that tells you. All the rest of it is descriptors of the proud ones. So the righteous has righteous will live in faith. So let's see what we can get out of that. Righteous, some of your translations may say just. Just. It means not guilty. Polite applause. That would sound good, wouldn't it? Not guilty. That's what the righteous person is. The next descriptor is will live which really, it's a verb, so it's an actual word. It means to be alive. It can even mean eternal life or life that's revived or life that lasts forever. And there's faith. Righteous will live in faith, which another translation is steadfast or steadfastness. It's a noun, so it's a thing. It's something, not tangible, but it's real. It's used about 50 times in the Old Testament. The majority of those times, you would not be surprised. Faithful or steadfast, steadfastness, it's of the Lord himself the majority of the times. Here's a great example. Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses writes, The rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness. There's the word, same word. A God of steadfastness, without injustice, none at all, Righteous and upright is he. That's what the Lord is. This is a descriptor of the Lord, but sometimes it's used to people, although in a negative sense. Jeremiah 5 verse 1 says this. Roam through the streets of Jerusalem and investigate. Search in all the squares. If you find one person who acts justly, one person who pursues faithfulness, that's the word, steadfastness, then I will forgive the whole lot. Is that mercy? Is that grace? If I can find one, one faithful person, this is the righteous, will live by faith. doesn't sound like the search is going too well. This was said to Jeremiah, and you know what happened in his prophecies. It's doom and destruction for Jerusalem, just like Habakkuk. But occasionally it's used... On the positive side, for people, Proverbs 12, 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. The Lord finds joy and delight when he finds someone who deals faithfully. So we summarize the proud. Can we summarize the righteous? Can we summarize what verse for the last half is talking about the righteous will live by his faith. How would you summarize the last half of that verse? What did Habakkuk mean when he said the righteous will live by his faith? Well, considering only an Old Testament perspective, I would have a few honest questions. If we were going to sit down and just talk, I would say, 
I have some questions here. What qualifies as righteous? We just had a contrast, right? Okay, so given Habakkuk's definition of proud, which we just covered, wouldn't, wouldn't righteous be the absence of all attitudes and actions with, which betray guilt and call for a just punishment from the Lord? Did you catch that? Given what we said about the proud man up above, a person who thinks highly of himself in spite of all kinds of attitudes and actions which betray guilt and call for his punishment from the Lord. Well, isn't the righteous then the absence of all of that? How are you doing? How does anybody reach that impossibly high standard? Another question. It says, we'll live. I've never seen a resurrection. Have you? Is life that lasts really possible? And, and another question. Could someone please help me understand the faith part? Well, by God's abundant grace... The New Testament beautifully clarifies for us Habakkuk's core text. The righteous shall live by faith. I invite you to turn to Romans. We're going to go through the three passages quickly. Not expositing them, but just pointing out what it says about the righteous man, the just man, the man who will live by his faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17, just follow in your Bible. I want you to see it in your Bible as I read. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is, ta-da, it comes out, it's revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written. Here's our quote, Habakkuk 2.4, the last part. But the righteous man shall live by faith. This passage is saturated with faith. Did you see it? Everyone who believes from faith to faith, the righteous man shall live by faith. So, so okay, what is faith? Faith is, you can write this one down, embracing what God says. My word choice is deliberate. Embracing what God says. And what has God said? Well, that's for another message, I guess. It's not just believing what God says in the sense of mental agreement or intellectual assent. Yeah, that's true. You may mentally agree that Concord is the capital of the state of New Hampshire. You might intellectually assent that Hawaii was the 50th state to join the Union. But thinking or agreeing to those things has no practical effect in your life unless you'd actually go to Concord, New Hampshire, and visit the capital, go to Hawaii which some of my coworkers, I'm kind of upset they've been there and I haven't. <laughs> Beautiful place from what I see in the pictures. 
You see, faith, as the Bible defines it, is believing and acting upon what God says. It's what I'm calling embracing, embracing what God says for yourself. It's true for me. I'm going to do that. That's faith. Habakkuk actually did this with what God told him, which incidentally, you can read your study Bibles. It's amazing. Habakkuk's name, I'm not kidding, actually means to embrace. It is so cool. I didn't even know that. I don't, I don't even know that it plays into this. It's just like somebody pointed out to me at our staff meeting on Sunday. So cool. Habakkuk has a beautiful expression of embracing God's truth, what God said to him. And turn back to Habakkuk 3. It's right at the end. This is worth, this is worth your time today, right? Just this passage alone. Habakkuk gives this gorgeous expression of trust. It's like, you said that? And it hurts. It really hurts. But I believe it. And I'm, I'm taking it for myself. Look what he says. Habakkuk 3, 16. Follow along. It says, I heard. Remember the dialogue? He heard the last thing was judgment on Judah first. Then the Chaldeans get it later. I heard and my inward parts tremble at the sound. My lips quiver. Decay enters my bones. You ever felt like that? At my place, I tremble because I have to wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. But he doesn't stay there. He, he's believed, he's embraced God's pronouncement of judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, and he believes that God will judge the Chaldeans after that, but he's got to go through it. So how is he going to get through it? He embraces the whole thing. He says, look what he says, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Man, I thought, I thought spring was late here. You think it was late? It was a late spring. It's like it took forever the trees come out. We didn't have rain in a lot of places. And it finally came and, and praise God for the rain. But here he says, the fig tree, if it doesn't even blossom and there's no fruit on the vines, the yield of the olive, that's a staple in Israel, should fail. And the fields produce bare shelves or Empty shelves. It doesn't say, it says no food. But the flock should be cut off from the fold. You've got the fold. There's no sheep in it. They've all been taken by the enemy. No cattle in the stalls. Here's faith. This is, this is faith. Yet I will exult in the Lord, the self-existent God. That's his name there. I will rejoice and the God of my salvation, the Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like, like deer's feet. And I can walk on high places. My faith takes me, as it were, beyond my circumstances. And I trust him. I embrace what he says. I believe he is good. He will always tell me the truth. I'm going to follow him. That's faith. So back to Romans, back to Romans 1. This kind of faith is what makes God's righteousness accessible. When you, when you come to the place where you realize, man, I don't have anything good. You turn me inside out, there's nothing worth keeping. And I look at God and say, I, I need you. I need you. Please save me. 
Please take my sin under the blood of Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about embracing what God says in regard to the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his being witness to the resurrection is also in that passage. Many people saw him. It wasn't just a figment of someone's imagination. All you apologists out there, right there, he was seen. He was touched. He ate our food after raising from the dead. You believe all that in regard to what God says about salvation by faith. To all who believe, this is God's work. This is God's work. Turn over to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read it aloud too. Galatians 3, 10 and 11. For as many as are of the works of the law, that is, anyone who wants to rely on works to get her done in regard to your standing before God, is under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's the problem. You can keep this one and this one and this one, and there's 500 more things. There's positive commands you have to to do. There's negative commands you have to stay away from. There are things that are visible, actions, and there are things in the heart, down below the surface that nobody sees except God. You gotta be pure and all four points. I have yet to meet a person that way. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. In the book of the law. And then he says, mercifully, beautifully in verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God. That's plain. That's evident. For, here's how life comes. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous man shall live by faith. Paul wrote to this group of believers who were being told they had to perform certain works of the Old Testament law prescribed in order to be justified. You've got to do this. Christ is good. He's good. He's part of it. But you've also got to do some other things to be declared righteous, to be justified by God. But according to what we just read, is there a problem? Yeah. Verse 10. You have to do everything. The standard is absolute perfection. No human apart from Jesus Christ himself can attain that. Paul says the same in Romans 3.20. By the works of the law, whatever system you choose to follow, you do the things that are in your heart or the things that are prescribed, you will never be justified. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, there's so many things to do. I couldn't possibly do this in heart and in motive and in action and in thought and deed and positive, negative. I give up. I give up. So Galatians 3.8, we didn't read that, but let me read it right now. You can look at it. Galatians 3.8 says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles and the Jews, by the way, by faith, not works, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So there's a contrast there. Justify the Gentiles by faith. Faith here then, Galatians 3, is embracing what God says in regard to righteousness apart from the law. 
It's justification by faith. It's saying, you say you'll actually declare me righteous by just placing my faith in Christ? He goes, yes, I will. And you place your faith and he declares you righteous even though you aren't righteous. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 beautifully explains this. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's an exchange that takes place. And you get to embrace the righteousness of Christ that God says it's yours. But it comes by faith. Hebrews 10. <coughs> Hebrews 10. All of these writers, Paul in the first two cases, now the writer of Hebrews, draw on this gorgeous passive, out of, passage out of Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. This is Hebrews 10, 36 to 39. Listen to 36 through 39. I'll read it for you. Please follow along. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. That's a, that's a quote from Habakkuk. That's a context of judgment. The Chaldeans are coming. There's not going to be a delay. But, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul takes no pleasure in him. Remember what it says later in Hebrews 11? It says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God for the one who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Pleasure comes to God by us believing what he says and embracing what he says. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on that. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure, but we are not of those, the author says to his audience. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. You see, in those days... The people to whom the author is writing right here, they had gone through a lot of suffering. Just up above it says, you, you actually went to visit those in prison. And, and they had their, their possessions stolen. And you had some of your possessions stolen too, but you rejoiced in that. And they're feeling like, maybe this isn't worth it. It's really hard to follow Christ. And the writer says, don't shrink back. God finds no pleasure in those who stop embracing and say, I'm done with this. It's too hard. You see, the writer of Hebrews quotes the same Habakkuk passage. The righteous shall live by faith to show that there is a continuity of faith in the life of one who looks to God for salvation. A continuity. This is sanctification by faith or growing to become more and more like the one who saved you. A commenter, commentator says, faith is not a one-time act. It is a way of life. Do you need illustrations of this? You need illustrations of this? Stay where you're at, Hebrews 10, and just look at Hebrews 11. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And all kinds of good things happened by faith. And there's a warning there too. In fact, flip over a page. I'm in Hebrews 11. Look at, look at verse 34. Well, verse 33. Hebrews 11:33. Look at it in your Bible. 
who by faith, oh, this is great. They conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Sign me up, right? Do you feel that way? You see, you don't know the result of faith. I stopped reading in the middle almost of a sentence. Look what it says. And some by faith were tortured. Some were not released so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and whippings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two by faith. They were tempted, put to death with a sword. They went about ill-clad, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and holes and caves. It's a long ways from me in Lincoln, Nebraska. At least it feels like it. But the writer of Hebrews quotes the Habakkuk passage to say there is continuity of faith in the life of the one who has looked to God for salvation. The fact that he continues in faith, whether good things happen or terrible things happen, is not your business. Habakkuk had a problem with that. You could draw encouragement from him. He had to embrace the good as well as the bad and say, I find my joy in you, even though there's no food and even though this conquering marauding band is coming. Faith here then is embracing what God says in regard to the character of your life. In regard to the character of your life. Young people, I've said this before to my own kids as they've nearly all grown now. I I think we're going to see hard times in this country. I think we're going to see hard times in this country. Rise up, young people, in faith to the God who never lies and stand with him no matter what it costs you. Does your life reflect this character of embracing what God says? Before we leave this Hebrews passage and conclude, let me just read a couple of passages real quick. It's actually Paul writing in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. He says, here, here it is, the same, same concept. So then, my beloved... Just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now while I'm gone from you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. A lot of people stumble over that verse and say, oh, I thought salvation came by faith and not by works. He's not talking about that. He says, the salvation that you receive by faith, work it out, have the continuity of faith, just as you look to him in faith for what seemed like something you really need, and it is. Continue to walk with him in faith. Trust and embrace what he has for you. What comes into your life. He is sovereign. Nothing comes to you that hasn't been through his hand. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Whatever he wants to do. If it is being sawn into or dwelling in holes of the ground. Like some of those in faith in Hebrews 11. Or if it's those who get people back from the dead. That's his business. My business is to embrace what God says. In regard to both salvation and the character of my life. Colossians 1 says this. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death 
in order to present you before him holy, blameless, beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have heard. The Bible's amazingly consistent. It's beautiful. Habakkuk, Romans, Galatians, Colossians, Hebrews. It's all there. The stories of faith that transcend many other books. God is pleased when we embrace what he says. So I ask you to evaluate your own faith. Most of us, maybe all of us, would profess faith. Is your faith really only a more or less casual acknowledgement of certain facts about God? Or about Jesus Christ? Maybe Bible stories that you grew up with? Or have you considered the good news about Jesus as desperately essential for your eternal future? Do you need to act upon what God says about his son and embrace him and embrace him by faith? If that's you, I'll stay as long as it takes to talk with you afterwards or anybody else. Any of the leadership would be happy to talk with you about that. There's nothing more important. Believer in Jesus, if faith is embracing what God says, if faith is embracing what God says, do you know what he says? We go to a Bible church, right? We believe this is what he says. How much time do you spend in the Bible? It's not a guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip. But there's a hunger there for the one who has come to know Christ, and it grows over time, maybe slowly. And it's it's an uneven thing, but there is something that God does in the heart of one who has looked to him in faith and embraced what he says about Christ. So are you... Are you willing to embrace? Do you know what he says so you know what to embrace? Are you mindful of what he says about your speech? Are you mindful of what he says about your heart? Do you know what God says about the need to watch over your heart? For out of it come the springs of life. What does God say about honesty in your business dealings? What does God say about purity when no one is looking? What does God say about use of your money, my money? What does God say about confession of sin? What does God say about control of my anger or my stubbornness? What does he say about accountability? What does he say about service to others? What does he say about your marriage? What does God say about genuine forgiveness? That is the forgiveness that imitates God. Ephesians 4, 32 and following. There's so much in here. I haven't even begun to scratch the surface. I'm saying that sincerely. It's like, oh, by God's grace, make me sensitive to your spirit and your word today. Do you know his word? This is why we teach his word. We don't have anything else to say. 
I want to encourage this church, Heritage Bible Church, not just this day, but every day, not just this week, but every week, to take every opportunity to expose your ears and your mind and your heart and your spouse and your children to God's Word. Read it. Listen to it. Memorize it. Study it. Text it. Share it. Post it. Teach it. Talk about it. Pray over it. If you really want to know how to embrace what God has said, if you want to know how to walk in faith, then learn what God is saying and embrace it. That is the faith by which the righteous shall live. Let's pray. You are God and we are not. You are a holy trinity. Father God, that you invite us to call you that is absolutely awesome. That Jesus became obedient to the point of death on a cross is mind-blowing. It's unimaginable. Holy Spirit, that you indwell the hearts of all of those who have looked to Christ in faith is stunning. And we so need you. Would you be gracious to teach us as a needy people what your word says? And would you please, as another gift, enable us to embrace it, to believe it, and to act upon it? Because we know that you always tell the truth. Be pleased to be glorified among your people, God. Be pleased to be glorified among any unbelievers here who need to embrace for the first time, really embrace that Jesus is the Savior, the only one there ever will be. We love him. We love you. We love your word. And we believe, oh, help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name.